0: Last talk, last talk. It'll be over before you know it. Uh, so just bear with me for a little while longer. I'm really uh, excited about this talk. It's very personal, very close to my heart. Um, here's where we're going. We're so we've thought about the gospel, we've thought about community, specifically the church, and then now we're we're we're, we're moving outward and we're thinking about mission. And this talk is going to be heavy on missions just as uh trey just handed out that book by andy johnson so there are going to be plenty of implications for mission evangelism in your immediate context at ubc uh, at uh, at u of a but um the thrust of this talk and you can connect those dots but the thrust of this talk is going to be thinking about the world we're going to think about from the scriptures here's where we're going we're going to think about from the bible four motivations for missions four motivations for missions or you could call them reasons four reasons or motivations that you should become a global christian and we'll end with three steps to do so so four reasons to become a global christian and three simple ways i'm going to just be straight up with y'all about my aim my prayer for this talk this morning I want each of you who claims to follow King Jesus to feel in the depth of your heart that caring about missions is not a special call for an elite group. Caring about missions is not varsity Christianity. It's not an extracurricular class. It's core Christian life. So here we go. Four reasons or motivations God's word gives you To become a global Christian. Motivation number one. Obedience to the king. Obedience to the king. Matthew 28. Turn to Matthew 28. The last three verses. Of the last chapter. Of the gospel of Matthew. First first book in the New Testament again. Matthew 28. 18 through 20. A lot of times people assume. The great commission is this. Go. Go. And make disciples of all nations. That's not the Great Commission. That's only the middle of it. The Great Commission begins in verse 18. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The risen King Jesus declares, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, this is the first reason to become a global Christian because it's the most basic reason. The king of the universe tells you to. (laughs) Right? That's why the first motivation is just titled obedience to the king. Matthew 28 is not the great suggestion. The Lord Jesus commands you to orient your whole life around his purpose for his whole world. And listen, this is why it's so important that I read all three verses and not just verse 19. We can obey verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Only because it's enveloped by verses 18 and 20. This very morning, a former day laborer from the backwater town of Nazareth is governing every zip code on planet Earth. Bashar al-Assad does not have ultimate authority in Syria. Xi Jinping does not have ultimate authority in China. Kim Jong-un does not have ultimate authority in North Korea this morning. All authority is mine, Jesus declares. And I love how after this daunting, intimidating, massive command in verse 19 Jesus doesn't just peace out. He doesn't say, go reach the entire world with the gospel. All right, don't blow it. No, he, does, he doesn't say that. He, he doesn't say, he says, oh yeah, one more thing. One more thing I'm coming to. I'm going to be there with you every step of the way. So the, the marching orders are framed by a foundation and a promise. You see that? The marching orders are in verse 19, and they're framed, they're bookended, they're enveloped by a foundation. Verse 18, all authority is mine, and a promise. Verse 20, wherever you go, I'll be there. When I was in college, there was one question kind of always humming beneath the surface of my heart, and I can almost hear it now in this room, and it's this. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? That's what I wanted to know. It's a good question to ask, but, you know, it's not the first question you should be asking. The first is not what is God's will for my life? But what is God's will? What is God's will? And did you know that God explicitly answers that question in his word on several occasions? Like literally, explicitly, he says, this is my will for you. So if you want to know God's will for your life, think about a verse such as first Thessalonians four, three, quote, for this is the will of God, colon. So This is like your verse, right? You want to know the will of God for your life? First Thessalonians four, three literally says this is the will of God, colon. Your sanctification. That's God's will for your life. That you would become holy, that you would look more like Jesus. A year from now than you do today. And we also hear the explicit will of God for your life in the words, make disciples of all nations. That is not just given to a SWAT team of Christians. That's given to everyone in here this morning. And now that doesn't mean all of you need to live the rest of your lives overseas. Some of you do. Some of you do. But all of you, Jesus is saying, need to invest your lives in the advancement of his mission. I think discerning God's will is something we tend to overcomplicate and even over spiritualize. William Carey. Uh, the founder of Modern Missions, a missionary who landed on the shores of India in 1793. He put it simply when he said, quote, to know the will of God, we need an open Bible and an open map. To know the will of God, you need an open Bible and an open map. I wonder what you're opening to find your life's purpose, if not an open Bible and an open map. Are you quicker to open a magazine or Netflix or a social media app to discover what the good life looks like? Or are you quicker to survey God's world in light of God's word? So this is the first motivation for becoming a global Christian. Obedience to the will of a good king. And that should be sufficient. I could close in prayer. Some of you would probably prefer I do so. Because it should be enough that we're commanded to just do it. But guess what? God knows that we're stubborn. He knows that we're lazy. And so he gives us even more motivations, even more reasons to be global Christians. Motivation number two, guaranteed success, guaranteed success. Now we thought about this last night. So I'm going to keep this brief. Matthew 16. So turn back to Matthew 16. Um, I'm sorry, not last night, last talk. We thought about this. Remember in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus declares, he promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For a long time, I read this and I assumed that Jesus was basically saying when he says, hey, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. The image I had in my mind was of Jesus basically being like, hey, church, you're going to be on your heels, right? Right. And all the forces of hell are going to just about trample you, but I'm not going to let them prevail. What word was I overlooking in Matthew 16:18? I was totally misinterpreting the verse. What word was I overlooking? The word gates. Now, I didn't major in engineering like some of you are. But I'm pretty sure gates don't play offense. They play defense. The picture the Lord Jesus is painting is not of the church in retreat as if gates are like running after us offensively. No, it's the picture of the church on mission, advancing, storming the enemy's gates. And as ordinary Christians like us transport gospel treasure to the world, we are are going to hear the gates of hell bending and breaking in the sound of the gates snapping. When I was in China for two years after college, I met a freshman named, his English name was James. We quickly became friends, and just like virtually everyone around him, he had never heard about Jesus. And one night, um, I got a copy of the Jesus film. Some of you may be familiar with with that, um, Campus Crusade for Christ, crew. Um, Has has used the Jesus film over the last many years to share the gospel in various people's heart languages um, around the world for millions of people. So I landed a copy of the Jesus film in Mandarin and I thought this is great. He's going to hear the gospel uh, from the gospel of Luke because really it's just the gospel of Luke um, told through a movie and he's going to hear the gospel in his own heart language. So we sit down in my apartment and we, uh, I put the movie in, and I was quickly horrified. I had never seen it before. I was really excited. I was quickly horrified. Because if you don't know anything about the Jesus film, I'm here to just inform you now, the thing is on the cutting edge of 1979. And James, you got to understand, James is not some backwater Chinese dude. James has watched more Ameri- uh, Western movies than you have. He is really hip and modernized. And I just thought this is the most like corny, hokey thing. Jesus is like levitating, you know, in the movie on the cross, like the, the, the most, what should be the most gruesome climactic scene. in the whole story, his Jesus hair is absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, it's like, he's in a, like a dove shampoo commercial. It's just, and I, so I'm horrified. It's like a two hour movie. And I'm just thinking like, this is counterproductive. We, we are, we are, the car is in reverse. And after the movie, after hearing the word of God, James, James looks at me and he says, that was the best thing I've ever heard. And he embraced Jesus that night. And James is now, uh, a full-time missionary to his own people in China. Um, I got to be in his wedding. He married a godly woman and, uh, any of you guys want to support him I can I can connect you with with his ministry but it's just an incredible picture of the 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 gates of hell not prevailing against the advance of the gospel can you hear the hinges of hell's gates snapping in 1958 we'll just stick with China in 1958 chairman Mao Mao Zedong chairman Mao's wife said quote Christianity in China has been confined to museums. It is dead and buried. In the 1970s, amid the Chinese Cultural Revolution, a visiting U.S. delegation reported, quote, there is not a single Christian left in China. This morning, there are 85 million, 85 million of your brothers and sisters who have bowed their knee to King Jesus in that land. And that's a conservative estimate. Can you hear the hinges of hell's gates snapping? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not withstand it, will not prevail against it. So motivation number one, obedience to your king. Motivation number two, guaranteed success. Motivation number three, love for the lost. Love for the lost. Before my missions trip to China, my, the original missions trip I went on in, in, uh, after my sophomore year of college, I never would have said I didn't care about the nations. Again, I wasn't that idiotic, right? I never would have said that. And I genuinely did admire those who, quote, had a heart for the nations. I was thankful for people like that. But that was God's calling for them not me. Now, without a doubt, God gives some people strong burdens about specific things as it relates to missions. He might give you a particular passion for a certain country or people group. And if he's done that, great. Lean into that. But I don't think that's how he normally works. Let's not be all mystical and super spiritual. Let's be honest. That's not usually how God burdens you it's rare that you just will wake up one morning with a sudden brand new burden for Africa. No, I think it can be easy in college in particular. So this is real talk right now. Okay. I think it can be easy in college to assume you already know yourself. To assume you already know yourself, what you're good at, what your passions are, what your calling is. I want to challenge each of you to consider that this is the time in your life. Not so much to discover your passions, but to shape them. It's the time in your life to study. Not first yourself. But God study what God loves and let that crystallize what you love. And you know what God's going to do? He is going to tune your heart to the frequency of his own heart, which is beating for the nations. Just as we can overcomplicate God's will. Remember William Carey. If you want to know the will of God, get an open Bible and an open map. Jim Elliott, the the martyr, uh, 1950s Akka Indians, Jim Elliott once said, a lot of people, a lot of young people are sitting around waiting for a call when really what they need is a kick in the pants. We can overcomplicate and over-spiritualize God's will. And listen, we can do the same thing with calling. Calling is not super mystical. It's not so much found by looking inward. It's found by looking upward and outward Open Bible, open map. Listen, a heart for the nations, friends. A heart for the nations is not something you either have or don't. It's something you need to get. A heart for the nations is not just something you either have or don't. It's something you need to get. And the way to do that, Jesus says, is by investing in the place you want your heart to be. If you're here this morning and... You're hearing what I'm saying and you're like, oh, that sounds good, but I'm kind of bored. I'm kind of indifferent to the nations. I don't have that heart. Well, Matthew 621, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 621, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We would think we would almost think Jesus got that backwards, right? We would think he would might want to say where your heart is, there your treasure would be. No, but he says where your treasure is there your heart would be. In other words, it's not find out where your heart is and then invest in that. No, it's find out where the treasure is and then invest in that and watch your heart catch up. Your heart is always chasing your treasure, what you're investing in, what you're sacrificing for, what you're praying about, what you're treasuring. So much of my Christian life, I assumed that love for the lost was the highest motivation. I was at a conference once, a missions conference, and the guy said, okay, everyone, I want you to write down your answer to this question. What is the highest motivation for missions? And the vast majority of people wrote the same thing I wrote, which was love for the lost. And we were dead wrong. That's why there are four points to this talk and not three, because the highest motivation is not love for the lost. It's number four, the glory of God. John Stott, the guy who wrote that book, The Cross of Christ, that I recommended last night, he put it powerfully when he said this. Quote, the highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, that was point one. Nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God. That was point number three. But rather, the highest of missionary motives is zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then he says, only one imperialism is Christian, and that is concern for his imperial majesty, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of his empire. The ultimate reason we cross cultures, that we do hard things and go into hard places and inconvenience ourselves is with the, for others is not love for them. The ultimate reason is love for God. That's why statements like these ring through the pages of your Bible. Psalm 67, let the peoples, plural, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. This is a sneak peek of your future if you're a Christian, okay? This is a trailer of what's to come. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. This is the scene around the throne of the lamb in heaven forever. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals addressing Jesus for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from where? Not just the U of A. Not just Northwest Arkansas from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Listen, your future Christian is so much better than just a heavenly version of Arkansas. It is so much better than just a heavenly version of America. Jesus bled and died to create the most diverse community in the history of of the world. If you don't like diversity, then you will hate heaven. If you're indifferent toward the nations, heaven will be a rude awakening because the man seated on the throne that you're going to spend eternity worshiping is not white. He's not American. He's Middle Eastern and most of his body there Around the throne and most of his body here on earth is not white, is not American and has never spoken a word of English. One of my favorite tweets that Trey tweeted back in his tweeting days. <laughs> was a screenshot of arguably one of the greatest non-inspired paragraphs ever penned okay the opening paragraph of john's john piper's book on missions let the nations be glad okay i exhort all of you to read that book before this time next year john piper p-i-p-e-r let the nations be glad and Trey tweeted the screenshot, and I think he said something along the lines of, you know, this, this may be the, the greatest, uh, one of the most important paragraphs I've ever read. This is how Piper opens the book. Quote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. All right, so you might, let's just pause for a second. You might be thinking, whoa, why is he sharing that quote? This is supposed to be a missions talk. He's trying to get us all riled up for missions. And he just said missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Bear with me. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. We do missions because people don't yet worship the God who made them. Missions exists because worship doesn't. We do missions. Um, so, so people like, like the Gaosheng, Okay, that's a people group, the Gaosheng who live in a remote area in the mountains of China, There are 1.4 million of them. And none have ever heard the name Jesus. Yesu Jidu in Chinese. No Bible in their language. No audio version of the New Testament. No Jesus film. That's made it to them. A population 17 times the size of Fayetteville. And not one missionary is there to tell them about their true King. The Gaoshang worship a dragon god they claim as their ancestor. Every single second that ticks, every single second that ticks, two image bearers of God in the world die and face their Creator. Two, four, six. Eight, 10. 12. Every second two people die. And face. Their maker. And millions of them are like the Gaochang people. Perishing for lack of knowledge. Why should anyone get to hear the gospel twice. Before everyone has heard it once. Why should anyone get to hear the gospel three times or dozens of times or scores of times or hundreds of times before everyone has gotten to hear it just once well that's the why that's the why why do we why should you be a global christian obedience to your king guaranteed success love for the lost and ultimately the glory of god but let's finish briefly by looking at the how So that's the why, Four motivations or reasons. Let's think about three practical ways to become a global Christian this fall. At U of A. Number one, pray. Matthew chapter nine, verse 37 and 38. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers. Are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why not make? The rest of this year, this fall, the semester when you globalize your prayer life, when your prayer life goes global, meditate on scriptures like Psalm 67. Write these down. Psalm 67. Psalm 96. Romans 10. Meditate on those passages. Use a resource like Operation World or the Joshua Project to expand the horizon of your prayers You can empower. Did you guys realize you can empower a gospel movement from your knees? Every advance in mission in the history of missions is directly traceable to prayer. Pick a friend in this room or whatever we call this, this shelter. Uh, Pick a friend to invite to meet up with you once a week this fall. And intercede with them, pray with them on behalf of the Gaoshang people or thousands other like them. So first of all, pray, pray, advance the gospel from your knees. Number two, give the last thing I want to do today is give the impression that you have to be 7000 miles away to please God. Not all of you are called to be goers, at least long term. But all of you are called to be givers. The way Piper puts it is you have three options. Go, send, or disobey. Go, send, or disobey. All of you are called to be givers. Again, your heart is chasing your treasure. Where you give sacrificially will act like a gravitational pull on your heart. You can't have goers Without givers, givers are every bit as essential to the equation and to the success of mission. And I don't care if you're a poor college student. You can invest, even financially, in what God is accomplishing around the world, in people like my friend James and among people like the Gaoshang. Number three, so pray. Number two, give. Number three, and finally, go. 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 I know there's a minority of you for whom going on a missions trip, and, and Trey um, Trey can give you more information about opportunities at, through, at UBC Fayetteville in particular that are available to you to go on a missions trip. Um, and I know there's a minority of you, for whatever set of reasons, for whom that's not an option. All right? But I'm here to say it's a minority. Maybe one of you. Maybe two of you. Maybe zero of you the vast majority of you are better positioned now than you'll ever be to take the name of Jesus to those who haven't heard it. You don't have a spouse. You don't have kids. You're not locked into a long-term job. You are more free now than you ever will be. Now is the time when you can be mobile. So seize this season in your life. Go on a missions trip. Let God enlarge your vision and your heart for what he's doing around the world. I, again, am not saying that all of you have to be long-term missionaries, but listen, don't underestimate how going, even for a brief period of time, even for one week or six weeks, how going will forever transform the way you stay. And yes, by the way, six weeks or however long the missions trip that UBC Fayetteville would offer, it is brief. Don't sit there and think, well, I can't do it. I have this internship to do. I have this job to do. No, it's brief. Two years is brief. I was in China for two years, and I look back on my time, and it's like a fuzzy dream gone in the night. I'm like, did I actually ever go to China? It just feels like a dream. That's two years of my life. That's nothing. That's nothing in the span of a life. Your immediate task in the meantime, by the way, is to be a faithful Christian in the spaces God has deployed you for now. Where is that? That's at the U of A. Invest in this college ministry, UBC college ministry. Join and submit your life to a local church, as we thought about earlier this morning, because the best preparation for becoming a faithful Christian where you are not is to become a faithful Christian where you already are. The best preparation for becoming a Christian where you're not is to become a faithful Christian where you are. Those who go well are precisely those who have learned to stay well. And So ask yourself, how are you doing loving your family, your biological immediate family that don't know the Lord? How are you doing serving your hallmates? Who are the unreached people in your dorm, in your major? Let's get specific. Pick one person. I want all of you to pick one person and write it down. Pick one person on campus who's far from God. And that for whatever reason you see or interact with in class or where you live. And start praying and preparing for a window to share Christ with them this semester. Pray for them every day. Pray that God would give you a gospel opportunity and that you would have the courage and the love to seize it. Proclaim the gospel and make disciples now, my friends. And you'll be ready to do so wherever God deploys you in the future. Well, we should conclude all these talks. Again, people love to whine and complain about you. Millennials, and like I said, you can commit. I don't underestimate you. And people uh, And in fact, here's what I think. I believe that your generation could complete the Great Commission. You. I think your generation could complete the Great Commission. Jesus says the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's time to be an adult Christian in an adult world, my friends. You're not adolescents anymore. You're adults. This is not a game. Life is short. And in saying this, I'm I, I, I'm I'm wrapping up. I'm summarizing three talks: gospel, community, and mission. The way I want to end all three is to say, life is brief. Hell is hot. Eternity is a long time. Jesus is worthy. So so when the credits roll on this global story where is your name going to show up what part will you have played what difference will you have made for the glory of the lamb slain who takes away the sin of the world listen don't become a mission speaker because you heard some uh, don't become a uh, don't become don't develop a heart for missions because you heard some mission speaker in the ozarks back in 2017 No, become a global Christian because you serve a global God. A missionary God. And you read a missionary book authored by this missionary God whose son deserves the spoils of his conquest, the reward of his suffering, the people for whom he died. Let's go get them. Pray with me. Lord, I have zero power to effect change in any heart lord left to myself all of my words about the gospel and about the church and about missions will just fall flat will evaporate into thin air will bounce off hearts lord only you can pick up my feeble inadequate words and empower them to penetrate hearts and transform lives. I pray for my friends in here once again, if any one of my friends in here does not have a saving relationship with you, may you open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus and give them saving faith. Lord, if any of my friends in here are indifferent toward your bride, I pray they would see how insulting that is to you. And that they would give their lives and invest their lives and commit and submit to a local church, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And, Lord, finally, I pray that everyone in this room would be a global Christian. That they would go or they would send, but they would never disobey. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to take a
1: little bit of time right here uh, to do Q&A. Um. So I think first thing, Matt, it may be helpful to be able to give definitions for uh, universal church, local church, just kind of distinguishing between those two. Uh, Yeah, so let's go ahead and start there and then we can move to other questions. Cool?
0: Yeah. So, uh, there is nothing wrong with uh, talking about the universal church. The Bible does every now and then. Uh, so we can talk about the church in China or the or the church globally or the church historically. But as I said earlier, that's the exception. The Bible usually is talking about the local church. How would I define a local church? I would define a local church as this. A covenant community of baptized believers who gather for worship and scatter for witness. Uh I mean, basically, historically, the the uh, a, a true church has been defined. The two marks of a true church, as opposed to a false church, have been the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances—baptism and the Lord's supper. Um, and so, I'm implying that in my definition. But a local church is a community a covenant community a covenanted community of baptized believers who are sitting under the preaching of the gospel and uh with in the context of baptism in the lord's supper and they're gathering for worship and they're scattering for witness you can double click on that and ask follow-up questions but that's the best i can do great also it may be helpful to definition for parachurch oh yeah a para, para means alongside so a parachurch ministry is a is just a Christian ministry that is meant, in theory, to serve and support and supplement the local church. So, uh, parachurch ministries would include uh, uh, BCM, Crew, Intervarsity, even the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, where I graduate and Trey and I graduated from. So, seminaries. You know, Jesus didn't promise any seminary that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against you. The Gospel Coalition, uh, Desiring God, all of these ministries were parachurch ministries. So, I'm employed by one. All right? I'm not opposed to parachurch ministries. But um, parachurch ministries go sideways. Things go sideways. Things go, go wrong when they start to functionally replace the church. So... A parachurch ministry is meant to serve the church, support the church, supplement the church, be a recruiting arm for the church, be a funneling system into the church, but is not meant to functionally be your church. And I was talking to Brock about this earlier. One of the reasons that I think it can be easy for um, college students, for instance, to think that going to crew on Tuesday night or whatever other ministry you're in can kind of be a stand in for the church is because it kind of, is because, not because you have so much a bad view of what crew is, and I know I think only one of you is involved in crew, so it's maybe not the best illustration, but you, you know what I'm talking about. These gatherings on campus, whatever the ministry, where you're singing and hearing a talk. Well, it's not so much that people have a bad understanding of what that event should be. It's that people have a bad understanding of what Sunday should be. So if all you think Sunday is, is a spiritual drive through service where you show up and what you offer to the person in the window is essentially your time, maybe a little money and what they offer you is some passionate worship and a good talk. Well, then you're going to think that what's happening on Tuesday night is that (laughs) because you're singing, you're hearing a speaker. If that's all church is, then yes, crew can replace the church. But that's not what church is. Church is what I talked about earlier this morning. Church is membership. Church is discipline. Church is a meaningful, accountable, covenanted community that you submit your entire life to. And it's meant to be the furnace of the Christian life. The anchor point of your Christian life. Um, So an article, if if you're interested in pursuing this, um, the distinction between... The church and the parachurch. I would recommend an article that you can Google called church and parachurch like families and soccer teams. And the guy gives a brilliant illustration where he says that the church is to the family what the parachurch is to a soccer team. There's nothing wrong with soccer teams, but how are soccer teams different than a family? Well, he said one thing, soccer teams have one specific purpose to win soccer games, right? Soccer teams aren't trying to transform the world. They're not trying to baptize people. They're not administering the Lord's Supper. They're win, win, They're trying to win soccer games. Number two, the season ends. There's a championship game. Number three, it's optional. You don't have to be on a soccer team. And number four, it's not all-consuming, all-embracing. You're around people that look a lot like you. You're going to be on a team with likely your same gender or certainly your same age. So again, it's going to be with a lot of clones. The church is beautifully and gloriously different. The church doesn't just have one uh, narrow mission to win soccer games. The church is called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to command everything Jesus has commanded. The church doesn't have an end date. There's no championship game. You don't get to retire and hang up your jersey from the church. You don't graduate from the church. Number three, um, the church. Uh, uh, what was my number three? What was my number three? Uh, the, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I'll go to number four. The church is an all compre- uh, an all embracing reality, right? We all. The church is a family. You can't opt out of your family, right? We'd like to at Thanksgiving. We'd like to hang out with that cousin that's a lot like us and reminds us of ourselves, but we also know there's the crazy uncle, right? You can't opt out of your family in the way you can opt out of a soccer team. And in the same way, um, the church is a family. Oh, and the other thing, it's not optional, like a soccer team. You don't have to be on a soccer team, but you have to be in a family. So that's my summary of the article, uh, but it's helpful. All right. Have you read that article? I have not that one. Okay. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Right, like, I'm how Hold up. Got to get the mic for the recording. How do you spell Gelsong? <laughs> Good question. G-A-O, G-A-O. <laughs> hyphen, hyphen. Um, X-O-N-G. X-O-N-G. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, you can Google that. G-A-O-X-O-N-G, Gaoshong.
2: In uh, Matthew 16, is he referring to the
0: local church or the universal church? Phenomenal question, and I don't drop the F-bomb often. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, he is actually referring, in Matthew 16, he's referring to the universal church. Okay. But, 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 guess what? Um, and this is something Trey can spend more time helping you understand. Matthew, Jesus, God didn't drop Matthew 16 out of heaven. Just, uh, it's not a standalone chapter. We're meant to read Matthew 16, just like any other chapter, in the context of the whole. And there's also Matthew 18 and Matthew 28. So here's what happens. Let me say this as simply and as quickly as I can. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives what he calls the keys of the kingdom to um to Peter the the confessing apostle but in Matthew 18 Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the confessing assembly so in other words Matthew 16 yes it's I will build my church universal but by the time 2 chapters later we get to Matthew 18 we're looking at a case of church discipline in one local church and the same language that we used in 16 is being applied to that local church situation. So the keys that were given to the confessing apostle are now in the hands of the confessing assembly. So the local church and then Matthew 28, which the great commission, I I don't have time to explain, but basically there's so many linguistic parallels and resonances that were meant to read the great commission as a local church mission. Where Jesus is saying, in the context of the local church, baptize people. In the context of the local church, discipline people. In the context of the local church, exercise the keys of the kingdom. So, that might be over your heads, but there are books that Trae could recommend um, that he could take you through. Simple books, like the size of that little missions book. There's a good one that's blue, and it's just called Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. B- most boring title in the world, Church Membership, right? But... It is an incredible, exhilarating book, and I would recommend you read it. Hmm? Can I show it? This book. Someone mentioned Tim Keller last night, so I'll read his endorsement of it. <laughs> filled, filled with practical ideas and good arguments that will help us cure Christians in our culture today of their allergy to church membership, pastoral authority, life accountability, and any limits to their personal freedom. All right, any other questions?
1: Yes. All right, so oftentimes when we think of short-term missions, like missions less than six months or so, um, I think a lot of times it can be done in a way that's more self-serving or vacation-like, if you know what I mean. Um, so how do we approach short-term missions and do it well to where it's like beneficial both to the missionary and to the church and
0: everything else? Great question. The fact that you're asking that question means you'll probably do it well. Um, the best way to do it is to only go overseas with a church or an agency that has a high view of the local church of the indigenous church in that place because that will be a church or an agency (laughs) that will be there not you know to rock the Instagram world but to actually serve the people on the ground I knowing Brad Wheeler and Trey I would assume that what UBC is doing overseas is good work not detrimental work Um, and that missions book that Trey handed out earlier He goes after short-term missions trips. One of the best articles we've ever published at the Gospel Coalition is titled Why You Should Consider Canceling Your Short-Term Missions Trip. Because you're right. A lot of short-term missions trips are just glorified vacations. But that's not what I'm talking about. So be selective in who you partner with. Yeah. Call those hogs, sister. Okay, this kind of goes along with that, but... um I've observed and I've also been a part of um, short-term mission trips where we don't know the culture or the language of places that we're going. Do you think this is a problem and that um, like it could promote like a superiority complex within ourselves? And what do we do about it? It could, but again, I think that um, like you should only do something overseas if the people there on the ground long-term have asked you to do it. So, perfect example, this summer I went to China for a week uh, on a missions trip with my church. And we did campus evangelism every day on a college campus, sharing the gospel with people who had either or certainly never heard the gospel, maybe haven't even heard the name of Jesus. And if they had, they would have just, the way one guy put it to me is, I say, who is Jesus? He said, an American God. All right. So, now, we shared the gospel, obviously, in English. Is that a good long-term strategy? No, but it did serve our long-term missionaries because what we were able to do in one week was share the gospel with 80 people that would have taken them a semester to share with. And so they can then follow up with those who have shown spiritual interest, if that makes sense, and plug them into a local house church in Chinese. So, yeah. And, and y'all can broaden questions out from missions, as well. I I can, it can be asked anything though. I can't promise I'll have an answer to everything. Yeah. This is kind of back on church membership, but I've been, um, a member of different churches with my family and coming to UBC was the first time I've gone through a membership process that involved, um, a sit down interview and giving a testimony and stuff like that. If I, um, in the future move away from Fayetteville and join a church and membership doesn't involve a process like that, should that discourage me from pursuing membership? In America, probably. So um, there are places in other around the world. So, so the Bible never stipulates, it never demands that you sign your name on a paper or that there be a formal, explicit, written out church covenant or that you have a membership interview because in the early church, it was, it was a pagan, Greco-Roman culture. Everyone knew who was in and who was out. Yeah. There were no cultural Christians, right? There was not the mushy middle. <laughs> the, no one was going to church so that it would look good on their social resume. Everyone knew who was part of the community. Problem is, that's not the case in America. There are a lot of people. Um, what's your name, brother, who shared the testimony? Remind me. Andrew Andrew kept saying, "I was falsely proclaiming the name of Jesus, falsely proclaiming the gospel." There are a lot of people who are doing that, and that's why we have to be extra careful about defining who is in and who is out. I know that sounds exclusionary and all the rest, and I can talk to you if you're curious about why that's actually not, but there has always been an in and out to God's people, right? Garden of Eden, uh, there was an in and out to Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, there was an in and out to Noah's Ark. The temple, there was an in and out to the temple. Um, and the local church, there, there's an inside and an outside. So if there's a church in America that doesn't emphasize membership or doesn't make it formal, that's bad. Because Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will give an account for you to God. Now let's just think about that one verse. Okay. If you claim to be a Christian, you know you're supposed to obey the Bible. My question is, how do you obey Hebrews 13, 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them. What leaders, right? What leaders? How do you know which leaders you're meant to submit to? Are you meant to submit to Tim Keller or Matt Smethurst? No, it's your, it's your pastors. And the reverse, and I feel this weighty stewardship as an elder, It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep watch over your souls and will give an account to God. I'm thinking as an elder, who am I spiritually responsible for? Who am I going to stand before the living God one day and give an account for? Not you guys. Not everyone who happens to visit my church on Sunday morning. Not faithful attenders who are like rings on my finger. No, I'm going to give an account to God for those who formally commit and submit their lives to the church. So just in order to obey the Bible, we have to have a formal, explicit understanding of who has actually made these promises to one another. Good question.
2: Thank you. All right. So you made a statement earlier I was maybe hoping for some clarification on. Um, you said, why should anyone hear the gospel three times before someone has heard it once? And... Um, Really, all of us hearing the gospel is by God's grace. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, like not, it's not so much that we deserve it. Now, that doesn't mean that I would say you know, we don't want to go out and um, obviously reach the world for Christ. But who, you know, who are we to say that because this person hasn't heard it once, they take priority to hear it over this person who has heard it once? What, can you, or maybe you could just clarify what you meant when you said that.
0: It was a rhetorical statement more than a theological statement okay. in the sense that I'm not saying you shouldn't be faithful where you are because there are people overseas who haven't heard it. What I'm trying to say is why should anyone get to hear the gospel endless amount of times before everyone has had the opportunity to hear it even once? All I'm doing is I'm just trying to press into the missionary impulse of the Bible. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, there is an outward impulse. And the reason is because those on the ends of the earth have never heard anything like what those in Jerusalem are hearing. So I'm I'm not trying to set up some. theological rule Mm -hmm. um uh and i will add to your point there's a reality of moral proximity that has to do with geographical proximity so it's really easy to love your neighbor in theory it's really hard to love your actual neighbor next door it's really easy to like love um to, to love africans in theory but to fail to love your classmate at u of a so that 's why i 'm saying those who are faithful in staying are those precisely who will be most faithful in going. You have to be faithful with the little things before you can be entrusted with the with the greater things.
2: That makes sense, thanks.
0: Yeah, I heard you talk a little bit earlier with some people about
2: some distinctions between uh, campus ministries, parachurch ministries, stuff like that in the church. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on the distinctions a little bit more because some people might say, well, there is an elder at crew or there is this kind of thing. We have worship services. Can you like reinforce your point on what church is on Sunday morning yeah. and what it's not?
0: Can I be provocative? Yes. Okay. Yes, <laughs> crew is not going to excommunicate you. I mean, that, that's the biggest difference. So basically, um, the, the biggest differences are the Lord's up are, are the sacraments or the ordinances, which are baptism, the Lord's Supper and by association, church discipline. Um, that's why. Uh, OK, here I'll be provocative. Don't take communion in your wedding. Don't take it with you and your husband, you and your wife, and don't take it with everyone there. Don't take communion at a summer camp. Don't take communion with your small group. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a church ordinance. It is given only, exclusively, to the gathered local church. It's not a private spiritual act. Um, baptism, don't, uh, you know, don't get baptized at a at a retreat. Don't get, ba- don't let crew baptize you. If if they're baptizing you, then they are overreaching. They're 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 usurping the keys of the kingdom that Jesus has only given to the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are church ordinances and discipline. So here's the provocative point. The Bible, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 5, elsewhere, um, there is such a thing, and it's very important, called church discipline, where if someone stops repenting, then the local church can no longer affirm their profession of faith. And so they formally remove that affirmation by excluding them from the church, excommunicating them. That doesn't mean they can't come on Sunday. That means that they're just going to be treated like a normal, non-believing visitor. Um, And I can talk with you more about that on our hike or whenever, but, I mean, that's a huge... You know, it's a huge issue, and very few churches in the evangelical world talk about or even practice church discipline. And it is a travesty because it confuses the, the, the person. So, so let's say that a guy in a church starts sleeping with his girlfriend. Or, or let's make, take a different issue. Let's say a guy starts sleeping with another woman who's not his wife. In a church that doesn't practice discipline, Do you realize what kind of a lie that's going to broadcast to the world about what the gospel is if that person can continue just being a member in good standing? The church is on record by welcoming that guy into membership. The church is on record saying, we think you're a Christian. That's what membership is, is the church corporately, collectively giving their endorsement to your profession of faith. They're saying, we think you're a Christian. So when a person stops living like a Christian, I'm not talking about falling into sin. I'm talking about living in habitual, unrepentant sin. And the church does nothing. You're communicating to the guy that it's no big deal. You're communicating to the rest of the church that sin is no big deal. You're communicating to the world that sin is no big deal. That You can just live however you want and still be a Christian. And you are tarnishing the reputation of a holy God. Listen, what's the difference between a, a lamb and a, and a pig when they fall into the mud? Both can fall into the mud, but a lamb wants to get out. It's not made for the mud, a pig is at home. Christians and non Christians both fall into the mud. You're going to sin. The difference between people inside the church and outside the church is not the presence of sin. It's the presence of repentance. A non-Christian is someone who loves the mud, who's comfortable in the mud. And if you have someone on your membership role who's living in the mud as a pig and you've told the world they're a sheep, you are broadcasting a very confusing lie about what the gospel is and what it means to follow Jesus. Sorry, I'm
1: preaching. So, Matt, just a distinction. Um... Would you say that the distinction there so is crew, the word... So, crew
0: doesn't do that. that yeah. That's the, the answer to the question, so keep going.
1: And uh, the distinction there being the word affirm. We can no longer affirm this person to be a believer. Would you say that the distinction is that we're not necessarily saying definitively you are not a believer, but we can no longer affirm that you really are because of your life?
0: Yeah, in the words of Tupac, only God can judge me. There it I it is. Mean, like, I, we, like, listen... Listen, we can't, the church, UBC Fayetteville, UBC Fayetteville doesn't have x-ray vision to see into anyone's heart, all right? Um, we don't know for sure. We're not saying, we know, excommunication is not telling someone, we don't know for sure you're going to hell. But what it, what it is saying is we, we can't say in good conscience that you're going to heaven. Yeah. That's the best way I can put it. It's not we know you're going to hell, it's that we can no longer positively affirm that we think you're going to heaven yeah
1: sorry about that just kind of a small thing i noticed like you were pretty particular about saying missions trip as opposed to mission trip and most of us are probably used to hearing the word mission trip is there any deep significance to that or is that just a grammatical thing
0: kentucky talk all right cool no difference
1: Okay what about those who are considering being called to missions like what does that mean?
0: Well as I said, it's not super mystical calling um, not just to missions but to anything, including to being a lawyer or an engineer or a whatever, I would say calling you, the way you discern a calling is three things: affinity, ability and opportunity affinity ability and opportunity. Here's what I mean. Affinity means, do you have an affinity for the thing? Do you like it? Do you desire it? Right? Uh, does it, are you passionate about it? So if God starts to place a burden for the nations on your heart, that's one piece of a calling. But that's, that doesn't in itself make a calling. That just means you have an affinity, a desire for it. The second piece, which is necessary, is ability. Are you gifted to do it? So not just do you desire to do it, but are you equipped to do it? And the way you know if you're gifted to do it is not by staring in the mirror, because we all have an inflated opinion of ourselves. The way you can know if you're called to something is not just by inward desire, but also outward affirmation. You need a local church to say to you, you know what, I think God has gifted you in this way. I think that you're equipped to do this. And the third thing is opportunity. God does speak to us through open doors. Now, every now and then, God wants us to knock down a door that's closed. But I fundamentally reject the little cliche that says when God closes a door, he opens a window. No, God might just want you to realize you have the wrong address. All right? And so, generally speaking, generally speaking, a calling, you know you have a calling to something if you have affinity, ability, ability, an opportunity. It's both an internal thing, but also an external thing. Last thing I'll say, a missionary who appoints himself is kind of like a Christian who baptizes himself. Don't be some self-appointed, self-authorized missionary. Don't look into the mirror and think, hmm, I'd make a good William Carey. No, you need a local church to affirm you and commission you and vet you and send you. Yep. So, hey, I just combine talk two and talk three. All right, so. Yeah, you you're guys are asking, go, and then uh, Chandler will be the last. Great questions. Yeah, Chandler I'm will be surprised the last question just because we got to get it. I'm surprised the, that uh, the, the really controversial issues in Christianity haven't come up, but that's fine. All right. Womp womp. What's that? How do you feel
2: about the sinner's p- prayer, and how would you lead somebody through deciding to follow Jesus?
0: I can, I can give a really personal touch to this answer. And I might even start crying, but I'll try not to. Um, because this was my, what I shared in my prayer request in our home group. Do you all have, call them home groups at UBC? Life groups. This is what I shared last week. So my daughter, Nora, is five, almost six. And she is expressing tons of spiritual interest right now. It's really fun. Every night when I put her to bed... I'll pray for her, and it's always some variation of the same prayer. I'm basically praying that God would save her. But she'll always want to follow, like ask me what I meant by the exact wording I used. And one thing I've learned in being a dad is, like, little kids, they don't understand metaphor, and so much of what we are talking about when we use spiritual language is metaphor. Like, I sing Amazing Grace to her, and I say, we— I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And she is so confused. What do you mean you're blind? So I have to ex- I have to explain spiritual blindness. Well, that's really hard to understand. So I start talking about the heart, and she's thinking of an organ. She can't understand a soul. So um, all that to say, I she has started saying, Daddy, I want to become a Christian. How do I become a Christian? Um, And I have really wrestled with what the heck to do. So I don't have a great answer for you. Because going into being a dad, my plan was to not do a sinner's prayer. Um, I prayed a sinner's prayer. I do think God saved me uh, around that time. Or maybe even when I prayed that prayer. Because I think it was an expression of genuine faith. But the sinner's prayer has become so... um, Mis- basically it, it's often treated like a set of magic words that if you've prayed it you give the pay toll the ticket they raise the bar or i'm sorry you give the pay toll the money you pray these these words they give you a ticket and then as i said you can sit on it for the rest of your life no um one thing i want to i want to press home to you guys about assurance of salvation giving someone assurance of salvation we often want to say, well, did you pray a prayer once upon a time? Right? The Bible never does that. When the Bible talks about assurance, it doesn't locate it in the past, it locates it in the present. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, not whether you were in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's why I ended last night by saying, are you right now repenting and believing and treasuring Jesus? If you're not, I don't care what prayer you've prayed. And you don't have to know the exact day and time you became a Christian. OK, do you know the day and time you learned the color blue? No, but were you born knowing the color blue? No. I pray that my kids will never be able to remember a time in their lives when they weren't trusting Jesus. So to answer your question, I'm struggling a little bit with my daughter because I don't want to lead her, to mislead her into thinking that just praying a set of words will make her good with God. Because what makes you good with God is what's on the inside. On the other hand, it's a little dissatisfying when she says, Daddy, I want to become a Christian, and I walk out yet another night And she's left thinking, and all I say is, trust Jesus. She wants something to hold on to. So what I'm thinking of doing is maybe leading her, um, letting her initiate some sort of prayer that I don't tell her is going to assure her of her salvation, but is the outward expression of her own faith in God. Because Romans 10, after all, does say that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm not anti-prayers. In fact, I led the Chinese guy James in a prayer to receive Christ that night. But I don't want any of you guys to think that just because you prayed to receive Christ once upon a time, that you're, because of that alone, that you're good with God. The question is, are you turning and trusting and treasuring him today? Good questions. If you guys want to follow up with me the rest of this retreat on um, anything, I'm willing to talk. Homosexuality, Calvinism. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. That, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. On, on the trail.